The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you gather us together to draw praise to your name from people like us. An amazing, gracious privilege that we can call you Father, that we can praise you, that we can know you. We can be a part of a great fellowship that is being gathered in from every tongue and tribe and nation. As we sang in one of the songs this morning, we're going to meet people that we've never met before and will marvel that you made us a part of them. It's a great privilege. You have saved us, called us to yourself. And if that was not enough, the fact that you have called us to yourself by your own work, by your own power, drawn us out, made us your own, and changed our eternity, and made us a part of a great people, made us worshipers of you, if that was not enough, you have even more so committed yourself to being with us day by day, to walk with us, to change us in the here and now. That is awesome good news. Sometimes we don't appreciate that because we don't see how much we need to be changed. But there are times, Lord, when we come in contact with who we really are. We are grieved by it and sorrowed in it. And then, into that moment, you say, but I am with you to change you, to make you shine like the sun, even more so today than yesterday and the week before and last year. You are making us new here forever, yes, gloriously, but even now you are with us to renew us, to transform us. And that's a good thing. We say thank you for it. And as you discuss that with us today in this passage before us, I pray that you would open our eyes to see it. This is such a familiar passage, Lord, and in some ways we can miss things and not see things and not marvel at what's there. So would you graciously stoop down to speak to your people the truth this morning? and cause us to see it, and make us to worship in it, and move us to walk in it vigorously, with vigor, striving, in a resting faith. That's complex. So make some things clear for us this morning, please. Father, would you commission your spirit to run through the room and to calm our minds and hearts? Even as I look at my own heart, I, I see the turmoil and the, and the distractions. And so for myself and for all of us here in this room, would you, would you run through the room and calm us and gather our attention to your word? Affect lighted change. Illumine the passage this morning for the purpose of changing us. 
press it into us. Send us out of here different people. Towards that end, Lord, I pray, open your word to us. Make it clear. Would you cause us, even now in this moment, if there is sin that sits in someone's heart here, that sits in in us as as a people, would you you cause it to surface and be driven out by confession and repentance? Would you clear the way? Lord, we need you. We need you to speak. Open your word to us. Renew our minds. Transform us as you have committed to do even now today. Build your church. Honor your name. Thank you for the privilege of being yours. Thank you for the privilege of being worked on. So do that this morning, we ask in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to the middle of Philippians chapter 2. We find another well-known passage. There are several in this book, and we come to another one today, verses 12 and 13. In these verses, we see Paul resuming the exhortation that he's been directing towards the church. He's kind of looping back to the the main thrust of his his command in chapter 1, verse 27. He's still working on that. Literally there, he said, you'll recall that he wants one thing from the church. He wants to, whether he's with them or not, he wants to hear that they walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that is worthy citizenship of the gospel. That was his literal language there. He wants to hear that they are living in a way that is consistent with, that matches, that's driven by, that pursues all that it is that God has done for His people when He saved them in Christ. And to walk in a way that matches the gospel. That's the command, and then it's elaborated on down through the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2, where he teaches a unified, humble, loving attitude. Covers the whole church, but then leads the church to to live, setting aside their own concerns and and being more concerned about the concerns of other people and, and seeing the other people around them in the body as more significant than themselves. The attitude that he wants to see commands that and then lifts up in front of them Christ in verses 5-11, through 11, the, the great model of that kind of life. He holds up Christ, and we've been looking at that over the last two weeks, verses 5-11 through 11 in chapter 2, the section that's sometimes known as the Christ hymn because it is so centered on and, and so worshipfully directed towards Jesus. Shows him as the model of this attitude that he wants to see in the church. This, this, this Christ who is God Almighty and yet made an amazing decision, did not regard that as something to be held on to, but set it aside and made himself low, made himself a person, made himself a slave, humbled himself to become a person, to be in subjection to other people, to be in subjection to other people in their folly, in subjection to other people in their wickedness, even as they sought to kill him, even to kill him on a cross. He submitted himself down, down, down to death on a cross and therefore has been highly exalted, given the name, the name above every name. That's what we talked about last week. Lifted up, so that every knee and every tongue everywhere declares, Lord is Jesus Christ. 
He is the Lord. All of it to the praise and the glory of the Father who planned it and brought it all to pass. So we ended last week, and that brings us to our passage for this morning, where Paul now returns the exhortation. He kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent there when he's singing about Jesus, but he's coming back now online with his main argument, branching off of verse 127 and following on. He's going to repeat what he wants to hear about in relation to the church. He's going to use different words, but it's the same basic argument. Summarized. Here's the main point I'm working for this morning in verses 12 and 13. The main idea. God commands us and empowers us to live in a way that matches what He has done for us. God commands us and empowers us to live in a way that matches what He has done for us working towards that this morning in verses 12 to 13. Let me read them, and then I'll unpack it in three observations. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. As I said, I'm going to make three observations. Here's the first one. Quite simply, Christians are called to work out the salvation that we have received. Christians are called to work out the salvation that we have received. Verse 12, coming out of this this great section about Christ, so seeing Christ in view of Christ the Lord reigning, this Christ who was the, the one humbled and lowly as a servant, in view of Him reigning, therefore then, beloved, I want you to do something. Paul has a command for them. He's going to come to the command. It's actually at the very end of verse 12, but he's going to come to it with a whole bunch of phrases that make it easy to to kind of miss the basic structure of the verse. He's got a basic dual comparison in verse 12. He's got two things that he's comparing. In its simplest form, what he's saying is, just as you have always obeyed, that's the first part, this comparison, just like always, like you've always obeyed, second part, so now work out your salvation. It's the second, those are the two things he's comparing. And that main, the main command or the imperative, work out your salvation, is the very end. I know you have been obedient in the past, and just like you've been obedient in the past, even more so now that I'm not there, just like that, work out your salvation now. Just like before. And the very nature of that comparison helps us understand something important. Because some people come to that verse, Christians and non-Christians alike, and kind of wrestle with it, scratch their heads and say, how is it that salvation and work go together? Work out your salvation? What, how do those two things relate? Well, it's quite clear, easy in fact, if you look at the larger context to realize that Paul does not mean to tell them, nor to tell us, that they are to work for their salvation. 
He does not mean to say, work so as to be regenerated. Work so as to be born again. Work so as to become a new creation. So as to get a new life. It's quite clear from the larger context because he is telling them repeatedly they already have that. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, they already have salvation, that from God, as a gift. As 129 talks about the gift of faith. We talked about this some weeks back. They've been given faith. They have been given salvation already, which is why he can talk about them as they are the saints, the holy ones, the set-aside ones. They are already partners with him in the gospel. They are already, chapter 1, partakers with him of grace. They are already recipients of a good work that God has begun and will finish. That's who they are. Christians already saved new creations already. It's not talking about work so as to become that. They already are. Part of our confusion on this point lies in not only missing the larger context, but in not understanding how the New Testament talks about salvation. The New Testament talks about salvation in, in a big way. And sometimes we, we can use other Bible words, we can use three different words to describe salvation. The New Testament will, will very clearly tell us salvation happens to a person at a point in time you have been saved. The moment you trusted Christ, you were born again. Point. And the New Testament will talk about how we are being saved throughout our lives as we look forward to the day when salvation comes, when Christ returns. Sometimes we use other words. Justified. Sanctified. Glorified. So either way you describe it, there is a work that God is doing on a Christian's behalf. A work that he, if you're a Christian, he is doing something. He started, and because he started, he is continuing, and because he started and is continuing, he will finish. What Paul's talking about is this piece. He is not talking about work so as to get saved. But now, in the here and now, in this life, there is very much something that must be worked out. Salvation must be worked out in the here and now. Right now, today, tomorrow at 3.05 in the afternoon, next Thursday, this is a lifelong process. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 12. Salvation must come into space and time, into this life. Because this has happened, now, just like you have always obeyed, there's another important note that dual comparison tells us, just like you have always obeyed, here, I want you to continue. Not just last year, today and tomorrow, whether I'm with you or not. Another way we could say this. Only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, verse 27. It's the same thing in different words. 
That's what Paul wants to hear. Chapter 1, verse 27, whether I come and see you or am absent with what do you know is very similar to the qualifier here in verse 12. Whether before, not only in my presence, which another way you should probably translate that word, in my coming, or in my absence, very same, very similar qualifier because he's got the same idea on his mind. I want you to walk in a certain way to walk out salvation here and now, Christian. It's a command. I want you to be obedient followers of Christ, living out this new life that you've been given with fear and trembling. The phrase Paul often uses, he's taking those words from the Old Testament. With fear and trembling, always used in relation to God in the Old Testament. That's what he means here in this passage, too. Not talking about us fearing other people, or trembling before the people, it's before the Lord. To fear and to tremble before God, we are to work out our salvation. Not because Paul told us to, but because we see the realness of of the real God. There is something great and sobering and it should be motivating and, and encouraging and driving. Paul, inspired by God, is trying to gather together the church and say, there is a life that is to be walked and that life is walked in fear and trembling. That life is walked with eyes set on the Holy One. Now, and to be very, very clear here, there's more to come in the next verse. There's more to come. Talking about what God's doing to help, but don't run on there yet. Don't, don't run to that yet. Stop here and, and don't dodge this. This is the part that as I kind of feel these verses, I feel half of it that feels hard and then half of it that feels sweet. This is, the, this is the half of it that feels hard and potentially, without the other half, potentially crushing. So I'm telling you beforehand, so you don't get crushed right now. I'm telling you beforehand, there's more coming. But don't go there yet. Sit here. With fear and trembling is from the Apostle Paul to the church. To us. There is a God who is real. Before whom the prophet, the prophet Isaiah, when he beheld this holy, holy, holy God himself fell down as the throne room of heaven is shaking, fell down before the king of glory, said, I am undone in my sin. He's a prophet. As he sees God in fear and trembling, falls before him. That's the God who still is. High and exalted the train of his robe filling the temple, still at this moment the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
So when he says something like, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In case you're not familiar, that's from a couple verses ago. What he means is, do nothing from rivalry. Don't you contend with each other. I am the Lord. Now, I'm putting it like this. I said this is the hard part. I'm putting it like this because I think sometimes we, we tend to get too familiar with this God, this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and we tend to think what Jesus really means is there. It would know, be great if you guys could get along a little bit better. If not, well, I mean, what would be ideal is if you could. What he means is do nothing from rivalry. Don't you contend. Do nothing from conceit. Do not lift up yourself. Watch pride in your heart. Instead, you must be a humble people. I actually mean that. In fact, I will tell you repeatedly, I oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. Oh, church, that we would be a people who in fear and trembling reckon what it is to be opposed by this God in our pride. Do you realize that's in the Bible several times to the church every single time? I oppose the proud, says the Holy, Holy, Holy One. So when he says, do nothing from conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, what he means is, do nothing from conceit. Work out this changed life, this humble, giving away, other-centered life. And I, I mean that. When we covered that section about rivalry and conceit some weeks back, I asked us to consider how marvelous it would be to be a church like that. And now I ask you to consider how sobering it is that God commands that we be a church like that. That suggests, commands. He has made us to be different. He has saved us at this point, to call us out from the world. It's what salvation, setting aside a people from the world to be different, to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, because what he wants is a holy nation. And so he tells us, be holy in First Peter, for I am holy. Etc., 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 etc. It is all over the scriptures. There is a work, a means, an effort, an expending of attention, a striving. Other ways it's described taking thoughts captive, beating my body to make it my slave. Those are the words of Paul also. Reckoning that I, Christian, all of us will stand before the Lord and be judged for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. The words of Paul to the church again, 2 Corinthians. Christian. 
Christians are called to work out the salvation that we have received. That's the first point. As I said, it is a sobering one, and it is a potentially crushing one because it doesn't take very long to realize, oh my God, I am not like that at all. Huh. If you're remotely honest with yourself, you look at that and you say, oh, It's potentially crushing, if not for the second observation, which is gloriously, 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 gloriously paired with this first one. And as I said, together, together they are sweet. But I'm pressing this one right now because I'm still talking about verse 12. I'm pressing this one, Christian. We are called to work out the salvation that we have received. You are called to work out the salvation you have received. To walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, required of you, commanded of you. If I was done, that would be death. Verse 13, second observation. God is working in us to accomplish his own good pleasure. God is working in us to accomplish his own good pleasure. Obviously, this comes from verse 13. A command from verse 12 the reason that it's not death, the reason that it's not non-Christian is that Paul knows he's going to write verse 13. So verse 12 is true, and in the context of verse 13, it's glorious. So we've got to take what I said about verse 12 and we've got to combine it with verse 13. Leads to a reason for, literally, the wording in verse 13, for God is the one working in you. Emphasis on God, not on Paul, not even on us ourselves. God is the one who works in you. So God's work is what enables, what makes possible, verse 12. There's that great big four, that because at the beginning of verse 13, work out for because God is at work. God's work does not eliminate our work. It enables our work. Apart from him, we can do nothing, which is what is sobering and even crushing about, about verse 12. But thankfully, verse 12 is not by itself. Our attention is drawn off of ourselves onto God and what he does. Now, notice this. I'm taking a slight step, just a slight step sideways from the passage to talk about the behind the scenes of the passage, or maybe the, the side view of the passage. People, people like us, people like the world, people like the church, are often inclined towards a lax permissiveness, a kind of a drifting through life that's a, a kind of a gradual rationalization of everything related to me, at least. I might want you to pay more attention to how you are, but I, I rationalize how I am. That's just what I'm like. It's just how I am. That's unfortunate, perhaps. But we're inclined to a lax permissiveness, 
And that's the kind of problem that Paul sees in the churches and is addressing with verse 12. He sees in a church there, this is a people who actually are kind of at each other. I need to command them to consider the other more important than themselves. I need to command them to look to the interests of the other because they've kind of drifted into being self-focused like we all tend to do. So, while people are inclined towards that, it lacks permissiveness, there also is another tremendous problem that religious people of all stripes, non-Christian religious people, some Christians, some who think they are Christians or describe themselves as Christians, there's another huge error, an opposite error. So if you've got on this one side, if you've got this a permissiveness or, or certain laxity, the opposite error is a rigorous self-effort. To put it in the words of verses 12 and 13, an attempt to do the work of verse 12 without the called for dependence of verse 13. The idea, so I'm not, not, not talking about the permissive one anymore, I'm talking about the, the rigorous self-effort. The idea over here is that we can do it right if we just try hard enough. We can live properly, righteously, if, we, if we'll buckle down and work at it and focus and set up some guidelines and, and some structure and some rules and hold ourselves accountable to those right actions and those right works. And if we'll gather around us people who also will be walking in this way, they'll kind of, kind of pull us along with them in a kind of a community encouragement effort. We can do it. We limit this and we control that and we deny that and do a whole bunch more of this. And we feel pretty good about ourselves if we think we're doing okay, and we feel pretty bad about ourselves if we think we're failing. The whole point is, I can if I'll just try hard enough. We can if we'll just get to it. What comes of that are incredibly religious non-Christians. Even in the church. Incredibly religious non-Christians. That's not Christianity. But can you see how it's easy to take verse 12 and go there? Was I not just kind of pushing and pushing and pushing, commanded, you must do this, commanded, you must do this. It's very easy to take that and say, well, I better get to it then. I better, mm, I better focus. Try. And you become, if you succeed, an incredibly religious non-Christian. And if you fail, a condemned, self-condemned non-Christian. Because that's not Christianity. It looks like it. you got all the Christian rules lined up there, and it looks like you're living out this salvation. All you are doing, though, is leaning on yourself and in your own effort, performing. But in the end, it all falls short of what God actually requires of us. He requires of us, on the performance front, perfect performance, and none of us can do that. And in the heart, what he requires of us, the first commandment, 
no other God before me. And when all that self-effort is the God of self rising up and sitting on the throne and being trusted in, all of that is not Christianity, though it may look like it on the outside. So you've got these two, these two great dangers. You've got a, a laxity, a, a permissiveness to which verse 12 says, no, work. And then you've got a, a work to which verse 13 says, no, trust, I'm at work. I best understand this myself with some kind of word picture that I've shared in a bunch of different places, so perhaps you've heard me say this before. It's not original with me. I think I heard it from a professor years ago, but I don't quite remember where I heard this. But these two heirs, they're, they're captured. If you think about we're trying to move through life in these two erroneous manners, this, the first heir over here is an attempt to move through life as if we are on a raft, adrift, carried along by the current. We might say, letting go and letting God take me wherever he will take me. A permissiveness, a, a hands-off letting go. And to that, verse 12 says, no, work. There is effort here. You are attentive, alert, and exerting. It's not a raft. And then the other area is, oh, okay, I hear work then. I think that I'm supposed to move through life as if I'm in a rowboat. And I grab the oars and start pulling. Work, 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 work. As much energy as my muscles can muster, I'm pulling myself along. And to that, verse 13 says, No, work, for God is the one at work. The power comes from Him, not you. So really the third option, not raft, not rowboat, but we are to work out our salvation to advance in the Christian life as a sailboat. Working, working to hoist a sail, working to hold a rudder, working to hold the boom. The boom is that, that bar across the bottom of the sail that you've got to hold it so that the sail points in a certain direction. Working to hoist a sail and hold a boom and direct a rudder all so that you can catch the power of the wind. The power that comes from somewhere else. Working, catch this, critical for a Christian. Here's where I'm, I'm leaving this, this word picture analogy to come back to Christian faith. Working believing that there is a destination worth going to and a wind that will take you there. It is a work of faith. A work. A work it involves you doing something, but you do that in faith, looking to and depending on some other power from somewhere else, from God himself, to come along into my life and drive me towards his good purposes, his good pleasure, where the verse ends. And that's somewhere I believe in faith, that I want to go because he has told me that it is good and right and honoring to him and a blessing to me. And so believing that I work and I throw up a sail and I say, wind, come. If you don't come, I can't get anywhere. I don't have any oars. Come. In faith, I work. And he in power moves me. 
trusting that He is the one. God is at work. I work for He is at work. Okay, so what is He doing then? To, to leave the, the wind now. What, what's He doing? Not just blowing. Well, the verse tells us God is the one working in us both to will and to work. To will and to work. The meaning of which is clear in the original. God is working to bring about in me, in you, God is working to bring about willing and to bring about working. So he's working in his people to bring about, his, his hand comes and, and touches to effect in me a will. To affect in me desire, intention. And then in turn to affect in me an action that flows from the will, the intention. But if you think about it, it's exactly how Jesus described out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out here comes from in here. Thank God that he works in here. To work a willing this work of God, think about it, this work of God is remarkable. It's remarkable. Because it is within his people, it is effective, it causes change, but it doesn't skip. It doesn't ignore or overlook how it is that he actually made us. If you think about, like, think about a car, you got a car sitting on a street, some great power of some sort might perhaps pick up a car and move it to over here. And that would be the car moving, but that skips, that overlooks, it ignores the, the actual makeup of the car, which has an engine and tires, drivetrains, etc., etc. God does not work like this. God works inside of us to affect a will, if you will, to use the car thing, to turn on the car and to get us to move along using engine, drivetrain, tires to arrive over here. He works in us as we are. He changes us at the level of will, which is awesome because it is so complicated and so powerful and so sweet because that's addressing the root of the problem. That's getting at sin where sin starts. It's not just skipping this to, to put a governor on my life and change my behavior. It's changing what I am on the inside, what I want, what I desire, what I aspire to, what I strive after. And then, of course, it changes what I do because it's, it's changed me. So God's work in you, Christian, is a work of changing you, and that is glorious. You do not want to be only someone who behaves righteously. You want to be a righteous person. You don't want to only act like Christ. You want to, to be in here like him. One who actually loves, doesn't just act loving. One who actually cares about other people, doesn't just act like you care. 
God works in us to will glorious truth. You've got to see the glory of that, people. And to see that, I think the only way you see that as glorious is if you actually see and realize, I'm not trying to insult you in this, but how much of a wreck you are. Have you ever, parents, have you ever had kids who, when you stand over them in power, clean up their room, grumbling? or mow the lawn, or put away the dishes, or whatever. Of course you have. Who likes that? Not us, not them. It is a great and glorious thing that God does not stand over us in power and get us to walk out our, work out our salvation. He wouldn't like that, nor would we. He works in us a willing He works in us at the heart level to change us. That is an awesome thing. It actually makes us new. How does he do that? What does he do to affect our willing? Well, I would suggest that one thing from this context loops back to the fear and trembling. He lifts up in front of our eyes properly this great and glorious God. Not a God who stands over you in terror and in power, but a God who is light, shining, glorious. Glorious. Have you ever had a moment when you have beheld Him? Prayerfully, you have beheld him. When God graciously parts the heavens, as it were, opens our eyes so that we see him, beholding his glory, we are transformed from glory to glory. 2 Corinthians, end of chapter 3. God works a willing in us by lifting up in front of us the truth that sets us free, that transforms our minds, renews our minds that we are transformed. And at the center of all truth is the truth about who God is. Because that's, if you think about it, that's at the center of every lie. Where did all the deception in the world begin? Way back in the beginning. God is hates you. First lie. God's not in this for you. God's evil. He's after himself, not you. Don't trust him. Turn away. Protect yourself. The first of all lies, every one of which elaborates on, every one since elaborates on that one is a twisting, a distorting of who God actually is. So sometimes we think he is evil and after us, and sometimes we think he's just a relatively decent God, but by no means compared to, you know, as good as this, this thing I'm offered and tempted with. 
So the truth that sets us free from all bondage and all deception is the opening of the vista of the glory of God that we behold who He actually is. And you as a new creation, you see that and you want it. A willing grows. So this tells us then, if you're still following my thought here, this tells us what it means to hold the rudder and hoist the sail and hold the boom. It means go to the truth and say, show me God. God, I understand some things about you, but prayerfully I ask you to open my eyes and show me the truth and cause me build a will in me that wants you, that wants to pursue you, that wants you instead of, you above, you first and foremost, no other God before you. Help me. It's something of what it means to hoist a sail and hold a rudder and hold a boom. In other words, to work involves first a work in here before a work on the behaviors. God does this in us according to his good pleasure, the end of the verse. He's always working in us, always shaping us according to what he finds right, according to what pleases him, which is good and right. What you actually want. So you've got these two things here. You've got, we're required to work out our salvation. God is at work in us, and that's what enables us, empowers us to work out our salvation. Together, those things are sweet. And that then leads us to the third observation. Bless God for giving himself to us like this in the gospel. Bless God for giving himself to us like this in the gospel. Obviously, I say bless God, and I'm not doing so because the text commands it anywhere. It's not, not even mentioned in these verses. So what I'm working on here is kind of an implication thing. We see verse 12 and what's commanded and get some feel of how that would be a heavy crushing weight, and then we see verse 13 and get some feel for how glorious it is that God enables us. And if you see that, you see both of these things together. You see God's requirement and God's provision. You see God's, God's command and, and God's enabling power. And there's something in that that says, marvelous. And then you could ask, why did he tell us, verse 13, I don't mean, why does he do verse 13? I mean, why does he tell us verse 13? Because he's doing it even if he doesn't tell us. This is the, the gospel, is that he comes and he indwells his people and he works in them by his spirit to change them. So he's doing that even if you never read verse 13. Don't know it. So he could have still done that and not written verse 13 down in some book for us to get. Why does he tell us? 
Well, certainly one big reason is kind of what we've already been talking about, that four is telling us in one big way so as to motivate, so as to explain and to encourage our action, our verse 12 working. Knowing uh, there's their command and there's a God who's with me to kind of create, if you think again about parents and children, sometimes you tell a child, clean up the garage, and the child looks at the garage, oh my word, that is so big. That's different than let's clean up the garage. Now, kids still may not like that. We've all been kids, we know how that is, but, but it's different. Oh, okay, well, you're going to be doing it with me. Different than me being sent out. I, I might embrace that a little more willingly and a little more vigorously, knowing that you're here with me and you're going to be working all the way through. You're going to carry the big stuff yourself. You're with me, so I'm encouraged to take some more and some longer-term action. So the first part, surely he tells us so as to encourage us in verse 12, action. But I've said a couple times there already something else, encouraged, motivated. The second reason he tells us, verse 13, not just to affect our action, but to affect our attitudes. Hopelessness turns to hope if you move from 12 to 13. Despair turns to confidence. And ironically then, we take up our verse 12 work at rest. We come to work resting. It is not up to me. He's at work to carry out his good pleasure, which is good and right. He will accomplish it in me. So I strive in peace. You know, chapter 1, verse 6 actually is true. He began a good work in me, and he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Thank goodness. I see who I am, and I see how much of a wreck I am. I see the, the... the immensity of the task before me, and not only am I encouraged to actually step into it and begin to climb the mountain, but I am greatly encouraged to know that He is doing His good work in me, in you, and He will get it done. Bless God. Christian. Christian. Think about what it is to live 20, 30, 40, 50, however long it is that God gives you on the earth, number of years, ever growing, ever being made new. That is a tremendous blessing that He is accomplishing in you for the praise of his name, and for your great good, for the good of the people in your little family, in your church family. What a blessing he has given you. And this should cause you, then, as you think about this, he's told you so that, he know, so that you know he's with you. 
He's on your side, powerfully engaged in an immense battle to do you good. And he wins. <sighs> do you see your sin? Do you see all the junk that is you? And do you see God? You don't, you don't know how that's going to get worked out, but do you know who's working it out? He is. He is. And I'll say that differently. He is. <sighs> Thank God. Now one great problem here, one great gap is if you have no idea what any of your problems are, if you think your problems are, I don't have enough money in the bank account, then this doesn't really matter to you. So I would plead with you to look a second time at who you actually are. To see how far off from working out your salvation successfully and appropriately you are. And then when you see that, and never mind yourself, but he is at work. And he is at work. <sighs> Thank God. Growth is real. Sanctification is real. Change is real. Renewal is real. In you, in this life, because of the powerful grace of God. That's in part why he tells you this. I'm at work to carry out my good pleasure in you. And as soon as you see that, bless God for giving himself like this to us in the gospel. Because apart from the gospel, he doesn't come to you like that. The gospel is what makes human beings and God right. The gospel, Christ crucified, is what clears away sin. The gospel is the, is the means by which God befriended you, moved in and took up residence in you, committed himself to your growth and to your final deliverance. The gospel is good news indeed for this life now, not just to become a Christian, but for this life now. And so, may we be a people who are radically gospel-centered, who treasure the gospel, the means by which God has drawn near, treasure that above all things, preach that to ourselves, to the church, constantly to remind ourselves, He is at work in me, and He is at work in me, and He wins. He builds his church. The gates of hell crash down in front of him and us. That is good news. Bless God for giving himself like that to us in the gospel. God calls us to live out and to believe him to be working out our salvation now. Thank God for it. Christian, I'll remind you again, you are a fortunate person. You are so incredibly fortunate that God in grace has moved like this in your life. 
worship Him in a happy and holy and restful and delighted manner. He's been so good to you. Let me pray. Father, we hear some of these things and some slip by us because it's hard to follow a long train of thought. Some slip by us because we don't understand. Some slip by us because we're cold. Some slip by us because they were not well expressed. And so, Father, on the tail end of time of discussing all these great and important things, I ask you to revisit the big ones for particular individuals here. Things they missed, things they need to think about again, revisit in each heart here what was most important this day for that person. You know what you're doing. I thank you for it, and I ask you to carry on that work, to complete it, carry on another little piece of it in individuals here and in our church here today, to build a people pleasing to you, to bring honor to your name through this congregation and this place. Do that please, Father, I ask. Stay with us now as we move into communion. Stay with us in our hearts and minds. And Carry us in contemplation as we look at the cup and the bread in our hands and remember the cross. Thank you, Father, for drawing near. Stay with us, we pray. Amen. Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.